Yesterday, in the lunch and learn that uh, that we've been doing online, um, we're learning um, we're learning one of the most famous uh, works of Jewish uh, ethical and moral literature that was ever written by someone named the Ramchal. His name was Moshe Chaim Lutzato, very famous family in Italy in the in the. 15th, 16th, and 17th centuries, he was uh, in the eight, and the 18th centuries from this family, the Lutzato family. And uh, for those of you, who have been, how many people have been watching that or get a chance on Tuesdays? So we're basically going through the most, probably the most accessible of all of the Ramchal's books. The Ramchal, Rabbeinu Moshe Chaim Lutzato, Ramchal, wrote prolifically, even though he died at a very, very young age, he died before he was 40, um, considered by many the greatest Kabbalistic mind of his generation. Undoubtedly, he was also one of the most creative individuals uh, in Jewish history. Some actually um, credit him with being the first, the, the, the first Hebrew playwright. It was common, in, uh, in fact, even in Israel until relatively recently as part of the general curricula that someone, someone had in, in school in Israel was to study the Ramchal's poetry and, and plays, not knowing, of course, that they were written by this great philosopher slash Mekubal or Kabbalist or mystic. He wrote many plays. And in fact, it's not part of the curricula any longer. But of all of his works, the Misilati Sharim, the path of the just, is the most well-known. And in almost every yeshiva, that's what they study, not knowing, of course, that there are many mystical, mystical um, intentions and mystical teachings that are embedded in the book. The book doesn't come across in that way. It comes across as an actual ladder for spiritual perfection, uh, a step-by-step guide to becoming a more wholesome human being, um, which is nice. Kind of, it's like an original Reader's Digest of, of how to, let me, let me make it easy for you. Right here are the cliff notes on how to have prophecy. You know? um, of course, anything could be further from the truth. It's a, actually, a, it's a handbook, it's a manual, and it expects you to work it. Um, and one of the things that we were studying this week was, um, we were studying, <coughs> we were studying how, um, how interesting it is, he says, that if one makes a claim that spiritual intelligence is actually an intelligence, or the spiritual field is actually a field of awareness, a field of inquiry, how is it possible, the Ramchal asks rhetorically, that all other fields are fields that we, that we say warrant expertise training, apprenticeship, discipleship. But when it comes to spirituality, we don't apply the same assumption. So if you ask your average person, well, how did you become a great doctor? They'd say, well, you know, I, I never studied with anybody. I just kind of woke up one morning and I just went with wherever my hand told me to go. And, you know, I, I, there was a scalpel that was on, and I just, you know, and I just trusted it. It was just, the scalpel spoke to me. And I knew just by looking at the person, there are medical intuitives, but your average individual, you'd probably laugh at them and say, well, that's ridiculous. And the Ramchal says, well, if 
medicine, economics, philosophy, Torah, various fields of Torah, let's say learning Talmud, learning Mishnah, learning Midrash, become a, a, a political scientist, all of those things require schooling and inquiry and training. Wouldn't it make sense also that spiritual aptitude, spiritual, um, spirituality itself as a, wouldn't that require training? How would you know what to do if you didn't study? Um, which is kind of a good question, right? So that's where we were in the Ramchal. I was in, uh, my, my Ariel and, and, and I and the boys went to uh, the Bahamas this past weekend, uh, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, Monday. And uh, I was invited to go down to a, a yoga ashram in the Bahamas in uh, Nassau, Paradise Island. There's a yoga center there called Shivananda Yoga. Been there for years, and they have these. Uh, they had like a symposia of uh, myst- mystics, whatever representatives of various major faiths. So I went down to talk, and I was the Jew. <laughs> I was the token Jew. Of course, it's it's funny from it's funny, right? But the, the funniest thing is that I was only one of a handful of fluent Hebrew speakers at the, at the uh, ashram because. <laughs> It's actually run by Israelis. <clears throat> Brahmananda is a six foot three, handsome, thirty nine year old Israeli walking around in orange, uh, you know, Swami regalia, and speaking fluent Hebrew. And when I made blessings, he took a yarmulke off the table and covered his head. And uh, and it was, you know, Daniel Matt has been down there and left his books there. And Shlomo Karbach used to go down there, so they were familiar with all my songs. I started, you know. And during the satsang, I started, la 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 and they all were like, la 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 It was amazing. It was really amazing. And, and um, one of the things that I, that I loved about it, I mean, here's, here's the way that it worked. It was um, people woke up every morning. I mean, this is not, the first couple of days of this are not exactly what you would imagine as a vacation. Because the first bell rings at 5.15. And uh, we were in a, in a room with two bunk beds. That's what they gave us. I was the honored guest. I had two bunk beds uh, with my boys and my wife, and uh, we didn't sleep at all the first two nights. So this first, we were up very... At, at, at 5.15, right, the first bell goes off, and then 5.45, the second one, they have a snooze bell. It's like, you know... The guy's name is Snooze. He's just, like, standing there, and he's going, waiting half hour, then he climbs again, and then... They go to Davin at 6 o'clock. They Davin at 6 o'clock. And, um, and then at 8 o'clock there's yoga. Davening is two hours. And then, um, and then breakfast is at 10 o'clock. And then they do it again later at night, 6 o'clock they Davin. And one of the things that was so beautiful uh, for me personally was there's a real sense there of character development. They're both doing the work. They're definitely working meditatively, contemplatively. They're doing deep stuff. Right, they're not. Right, it's not your average spiritual practices. They're sitting and chanting kirtan, and they're meditating for a half hour on mantras. They're doing some pretty good inner work, but more than anything, though, the work there is the work of of ethical refinement. Like, not you know, being mindful of how much you speak, being mindful of like there's a real attention is being given to the moment to moment interactions. Right, that are beyond the, the, the 
the prayer service beyond the contemplative practices. And that's, in a way, where the Ramchal and, let's say, the Ramak are, are working with us. They're working with our day-to-day interactions, our day-to-day life. And I want to say, I know this is going to be live somewhere, I don't know, but um, it, 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 there was a, a bit of a Litvisha feeling about it to me, meaning Litvish, it was very, uh, it was a bit dry, and they weren't exactly warm. The, in their desire to maintain a certain culture where boundaries were very firm, it actually stopped them from being m- moist or warm. It was dry, it was very dry. Right, so, you know, I, I came in and, and by, the, by the time we left, we were hugging them and it was like, you know, it was like they were singing and it was all, you know, Labadik. It was all very full of life. <laughs> but, but, but by, in the beginning, it was more like they would see you and they'd be like, hello, you know, we're like, we're like you know, you know, they didn't want the volume to go up too high. They wanted things to be very contained, very boundary. And I understood it. I understood it. When I, when I hugged inappropriately, but I did anyway, and I hugged a couple of the women who were working there, I could feel how, how not used to being, like, like they, that's just, they don't do that. And, and I get it in a certain way. There's a certain givura, there's a certain container that lends itself then to kind of, it's cleaner that way. It doesn't get messy, and it allows them to be very focused. They don't expend energy inappropriately. It's kind of very contained, very efficient. And, and I liked it. I, I, it's not my way particularly, but I liked it. So I think that in some ways, this Kabbalistic agenda, the paradigm that we've been studying together for almost two months now, it's a month and a half, I think it's eight weeks, probably like six weeks, we've been playing around with uh, the notion in this book, the Pardes, uh, I'm sorry, the Tomer Dvara, which is looking at the various energies of God as, as invitations to, um, to day-to-day work, day-to-day practice. Day-to-day practice. So I was at the, another story, and then, and then we'll study. <coughs> I was at the, the UJA Federation today, um, working with some, they're working with a group of rabbis, were considered like uh, on rabbi stuff. And, um, and they wanted to talk about, for us to finish, they showed us Martin Luther King's I Have a Dream speech, <clears throat> which, is, which gets me every time. It's moving every time. I've seen it a thousand times. It's moving every time. And then they had us write out, I imagine a community or a congregation where, dot, dot, dot. And they wanted us to write our own I Have a Dream speech, as it were. So one of the things that I said, um, I wrote out a lot. And um, one of the things was that I imagine a community where love is not a four-letter word, but that it is the infinite number of letters that are represented by each face of God that comes through the doors of the shul. And that love takes all of those forms. And that we, that we are enjoined to decipher the love word of each person that walks in. And that... I also imagined a community that was devoted to spiritual practice as much as any other of their practices. That they they work their heart like they brush their teeth. 
every day, morning and night, cleansing, purifying, that they recognize cavities accrue not just in the teeth but also in, in our character and that we work. We're, we're here to work. Um, and so uh, I just wanted to remind myself of that kavanah on YouTube because I haven't seen, we did study last week and, um, and I really appreciate that people come out here and are committing to spiritual, to Jewish spiritual life through learning and through, through working. So I just wanted to put that out. Where we were, thanks to Karen Freak, we uh, have these texts to hand out. I'm going to hand them out. We were talking about Bina. We were talking about, you know what? Don't hand them out. It's only like the last, we, we got to the last paragraph anyway. Basically, we got to the, the end. Um, well, you know what? We didn't get to Chesed. So let's, go, let's hand it out and go to Chesed. You're right. So let me remind you, in the divine, I'm sorry for those for whom this is repetition ad nauseum, in the, in the tree of life, in the spherot, as inner divine sub-personalities or qualities, God is made up of ten of these energies, not eleven, not nine, ten. They begin with God's mind. Keter chokhma bina. Right? The crown wisdom and understanding. And we studied how the keter of God, the crown of God, can impact our own, our own softening of the forehead of judgment and receiving each person um, with love and with acceptance. We talked about how we could imitate God, that just as God in the, mo- in the mode of keter, the unknowable keter that looks down, in humility. Remember we talked about humility? We talked about, we had the practice, remember, of seeing each person as, of, as its own Elohim, as a divine face, and that our humility comes from relating to that. Remember this? And then the Ramak, Moshe Cordovero, went into um, Moshe Cordovero went into then Chochmah, Right, which has the quality of looking above and looking below in both directions. And that wisdom, right, and the practice of wisdom. Uh, and we had Bina last week, just to refresh your memory. That in Bina, um, Bina is the mystery, the, Ram, the uh, Ramak says, of, of Chuva, of returning. And that Bina consciousness is... Uh, a promise to return over and over again to start anew, to not give up hope. Bina is Phoenix rising from the ashes. It's, it's called the womb of God also because it's in Bina that the world is born, as it were. I have a question what happened? It seems like everything was high, and then Chokma was just divine, you know, really getting the inspiration from Petra and sharing it out. And then Vina was. Chokma like, was the willingness to be a teacher to everyone. 
and to learn from everyone. Yeah, but then Vina, why is it coming out of the ashes? When nothing, what was in the ashes? I mean, where is that place? It, it means, Vina means that it isn't, Vina becomes the, the palace of return after everything else unfolds. In other words, after all the Svirot have... Oh, so it comes at the end. At the end. Vina doesn't emerge at the end, but its function as place of returning is after the rest of creation has emerged. Also, it's almost like a filter. Like it is a filter. Out. It is a good filter. Okay. Now, it's interesting about Chochmah, just to go back to Chochmah. Who knows the last of the 12 steps in the 12-step program? Mm -hmm. Judy, what is it? The 12th. The 12th. So being willing to share it with all others. And I, and I heard someone say today about that, which I loved. He said... In using it in all parts of your life. He said the, dis, the, di, the difference between someone... This is his contention, and he said he read literature on it. I don't know if it's true. He said the difference between those who actually successfully navigate their program and those who don't is whether or not they bridge all 11 steps with the 12th step. Right? If you don't pass it on, he said that's a very clear indicator that you don't learn how to inter internalize the, uh, the previous 11 stages. That teaching, like chokhmah, like to be a chacham isn't just to be wise, but it's to share. <coughs> and in sharing, to learn. Like I learn by teaching what I know, because then I learn more. And that the posture of the one who is fearless is the one who shares what they know. Because if wisdom is power, knowledge is power, my withholding my knowledge from you is my own feeble attempt to prop myself up as still more powerful than you. You don't know what I know. And that minute I bridge that and I say, you know what, what I know, I don't even know it. And, if, and, I, and my knowing it is it's not mine. It's yours, it's, it's all of ours, and I give it freely. And the one who learns it gets that. Right, the one who learns it gets that. Say it again. You learn it because the person helping you learned it and was there. Right. And you kind of don't trust the guy who wasn't. That's also true. So this chachma, even though it's at the beginning of the hierarchy, right? It's the first sfirah after keter, but it's also the last sfirah before keter. Right? It is essentially the last step. Chachma mm -hmm. is the last step it, from the bottom up. My keter is not like a step, really. That's great. So it's, you should see it going around. Yeah, you should see it in both, in both directions. He's just working from top to bottom, but he goes from bottom up too. So Bina is the eighth sphira from the bottom up, which is why it always represents, Bina always represents the beyond. It's, the, it's called Yovel, Jubilee, because Jubilee is the 50th year in a seven times seven cycle, so it is analogous. 50 is the higher vibration of eight in a seven-year cycle. Does that make sense? 50 is to 49 as 8 is to 7. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. I see mathematicians going, Starbucks, <laughs> one second, Starbucks, carry the latte. I think, uh, again, one more time. 50 is to 49 energetically as 8 is to 7. 7 times 7 is 49. 50 is that next step after the ultimate 7s, seven 7-ups. So... 50 always comes to represent in Kabbalah, Jubilee, which means freedom. Because in the actual Jubilee year, all the slaves are freed. So 50 becomes the number of freedom. Free at last, free at last. 
Nun is the letter of freedom because it has the numerical value of 50. That's why Shavuot is the, right? You receive Torah, Torah is supposed to free you. Ein ben chorin Torah. The free person is the one who's learning Torah, so Shavuot is a holiday of the freedom of learning Torah. So Bina is, right from the bottom up, is beyond the seven lower spherot. It's the first one beyond. We've done this in many, at many points. So here we are in the Ramak saying, all of that is nice theory, as my friend Amichai would say. Nice theory. So tachlis, what do you do? So bina, and some of the, one, I love the kind of symbol clusters too. Bina is considered to be the womb that births the lower spherot. It also is the, then the mother that one returns to, right? When one returns, one gestates the next moment. So returning is, returning is, is when I'm caught. He says it beautifully. Like, it's, when I'm caught thinking that, that what I just did is absolutely impossible to fix. I can't possibly fix that. I can't possibly elevate that. I can't possibly redeem that. I can't possibly purify that. I can't possibly return from that. There's no way, right? That's what he says. If you read in Bina, right, the last paragraph we'll read together, will the congregation please turn to page 88. last week where the beautiful notion of sweetening judgments I love that I wish somebody that term hamtakat dinim lahamtikita dinim to sweeten the judgments sweetening the judgments is a unique Kabbalistic phrase that means to turn lemons into lemonade to take a curse and make it into a blessing Sweeten judgments. Right? I think, um, you know, all parenting is a kind of sweetening of judgments. I think all good um, relationships come from sweetening judgments. Now, it could literally mean the judgments that we have with each other and we sweeten them. He means it more here that a judgment could be a divine judgment. Right? Something bad is going to happen and we sweeten that judgment by counteracting it. Right? We pray in some way and it, it softens that judgment. But we don't have to be theological about it. It can be very personal, very psychological. To sweeten the judgment means to go to the root of it and try to, to sweeten it there. That's a general principle in Kabbalah. You can't sweet The most effective sweetening of a judgment is not in its limb, but in its root. Which is a nice way of saying symptoms and working with symptoms ain't going to cut it. If you want to heal something, you've got to go to the root. If you want to heal something, you've got to go down deep into where it began. And, right, and you'll notice probably at that, in the deep place where, where, where judgments begin that it was a very small issue or a small moment that became a big, big issue. You can imagine, um, and this happens to me all the time with my boys. Like, I can see one of them, it's going, like, 
one of them is going crazy. And if I catch it already when it's in its limb stage, forget it. Because it's, it's gone. It's in everything. And, and one thing has led to another. And then I'm trying to clean up all the mess because, it, you know, it's like, you know, it's like if my kid would step in paint, let's say. As long as his foot's still in the bucket, there's a possibility of containing it, you know? But the minute it starts going everywhere, then I got to clean it up in the living room and in the dining room. Like the smallest moment of fissure, if you can heal it at that point of fissure, then you, that's, that's its most powerful place. Clearly, this is intuitive as we get this, right? But more often than not, what we wind up doing is, because there's so much other breakage and, and hurt going on, and judgment going on, and pain going on, it's very hard to get to the shoresh, to the, to the root. So we spend a lot of our time gardening, uh, trimming the weeds, as it were. And we don't get to the source of it. And then it keeps growing back, it keeps growing back, it keeps growing back. We just trim it, it grows back, we trim it, it grows back. And so the Kabbalah says, you have to identify the root and then sweeten the judgment there. And when you sweeten the judgment there, the Kabbalah says, that is um, the most effective, the most wholesome, and that is what we would call a rebirth. That is literally entering into the Bina mode and trying to heal the source file, as it were. Where it was born from, one heals it and then it's reborn. Right? That's the, the healing power of tshuva. Now, tshuva happens in therapist's office across the world. Tshuva happens, um, you know, it's not happening in our country um, when it, with regard to racism and economic inequality. All we do is sweeten judgments that are very big extensions along very long limbs, and we almost never have the courage to go deep to the root, and that's why it persists and it persists and it persists. It's endemic. It's systemic. Um, it's rooted in the bina of, the, of America itself. It's in the, it was in the, the, the very pregnancy, as it were, of American consciousness was, um, right, when you have people writing things like that all men are created equal and they themselves own slaves, you know that our country is born in hypocrisy in certain ways, that there's systemic inequality and systemic um, difficulties that will then continue, right? No matter what we've done, it's still there. So it's hard. Bina, like, sweetening things at the root are difficult. But when he says something, I don't know if you all remember this from last week, and it blew me away. He said, don't think that you can only return on, you know, when you've strayed with some good things and, or there's a little bit of good. He said, you can even return from, with the evil or the difficult piece. Remember that? Yeah. Let's read that. It's on the top of page 88. It says, Do not say that returning is good only for the holy portion within you. The evil portion, too, is sweetened in the manner of this quality. Do not think that because you incline towards evil, there is no remedy. This is false. If you do well in rooting yourself in returning, that should be like, I want a mantra of that up in our office. Root yourself in returning. Root yourself in returning. It's like they're saying about the, the Rav Cook, 
Rav Kuka, the first chief rabbi of Palestine, who was an incredibly holy person. Do you know what he used to say about himself? <clears throat> Whenever somebody would say, oh, that person is a Baal Tshuva, somebody who's a return, someone who's a born-again Jew, he'd say, in Yiddish, he'd say, Ich bin a Baal Tshuva. I'm a Baal Tshuva. And they say, what do you mean, a Baal Tshuva? You're like, you're, you're come from 20 generations of rabbis. How are you a born-again Jew? He's like, Ich bin a Baal Tshuva. I'm returning. I'm, I'm, I'm a master of returning. That's what I want to be. I'm a Bina person. So I'm in, I'm in little India over there, in, uh, uh, in the Bahamas. And there's a sweet couple doing the children's program. Um, and he, um, it's like five little kids. I didn't do any adult yoga. I was only with the kids, which was great. I, they teach it better to kids than they teach it to adults. Because when they teach kids yoga, they teach them with, with stories. They don't give them, like, it's not science. They say, there was a bear, and the bear, you know, went for a really big walk, and everybody make a bear, and they get a walk. And then there was a lizard, and they do the lizard. You know, it's like an all-story form. So I loved it. It's like each posture is an animal. It's not like downward dog. It's like, no, that's the posture of a bear looking for, for, you know, looking for some honey in a pot. You know, I love that. So um, this, this guy starts to do a kirtan. He brings his harmonium like Jessica had. And the most famous uh, harmonium company in the world is called Bina Harmonium. If you look at Krishna Das and if you look at the... Bina, is, that's the name of the biggest harmonium producer. Bina. So randomly, of course, they don't know that I'm taking this. Um, he starts saying to the kids, let's count how many keys there are on the, on the, on the harmonium. So he starts counting. And he says, oh, you have to count the black ones too. And so he starts counting the white and black. Comes out to 42. 42. So, I, you know, maybe some of you don't know this, but uh, in Kabbalah, the number 42 is, is a very, it's a very uh, powerful letter combination for the name of God, 42. 42 letter name of God. And it happens to be associated with Bina. With the Sphira Bina. So it's just like, and, and it made sense to me because music, and by the way, music is also connected with Bina. You know, sometimes, sometimes you hear a note and then another note, Anne Lamott writes this, sometimes you hear a note and then another note and your heart breaks open and you don't know why. It's, 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 it's beyond language, it's with language, it's, it's something opens and it's musical and, and you feel that you've returned. You know, I just want to say one last thing. I, those of you who are here for the first time, I apologize for my style, but I, I, I'm, I, I riff. What can I do? I riff, therefore I am. So um, the, word, the word in the sacred symbol of original divine consciousness in Sanskrit is not a word. It's a sound. It's om. Om. And I said to them on Friday night, that in Hebrew, the word om, or the syllable, the two letters, om, are part of a, we ourselves have sacred vibrational language, and om is associated with mother, aim. Right, aim and om, right, shal om is also shal aim, of the mother. 
Shalom is of the mother, and it's really of peace means to return home. Returning om. Om sweet om. There's a Hebrew word, homeh libi, homeh. Hey vav mem hey. Homeh means my heart is fluttering. Homeh means it, I, I, I'm seeking the nest that is my own, my aim, my mother. And that's Bina. Bina is the sacred vibration that says, you are home. Home. And it's amazing how often in a day we are, we are homeless. Homeless. And so he's saying, it doesn't matter what you did wrong. Your mother is always waiting to welcome you home. That's tshuva. Tshuva is the, the warm embrace, the hot chocolate, the blanket, the Divine Mother who says, okay, it's been a long journey. And maybe you're a little bit schmutzy, maybe you're a little bit dirty, a little, maybe you're a little bit ashamed, maybe you're feeling a little bit guilty, but I always have a vacancy here for you. That's Bina. I mean, he didn't say all that, but that's Bina. <clears throat> It says, for the root of every supernal bitterness is sweet. You can enter through this root and make yourself good. Thereby you transform the bad deeds themselves into good and your intentional sins turn into merits. The misdeeds you committed have been that have been accusing you from the left side. Once you return completely, you raise those deeds and root them above. Those accusers are not annihilated but ameliorated, rooted in holiness. Now this is one of the most difficult and dangerous doctrines in all of Kabbalah, which is that here you are full of mistakes, and he's saying that if you return to the root of everything, you'll bring those mistakes and turn them somehow into gloriously meritorious moments. It's a very difficult thing to understand. It's not entirely clear how we can, we can like, integrate that. If you're sitting with someone who feels the lament or the regret of a life mis, you know, mislived. But he's saying that if you go to the root of it and you can forgive yourself, it will open your heart also to forgive others that you judge. I was thinking about this a lot. Because as a parent, often how you parent your children is, is essentially how you're parenting yourself moment to moment. You get a chance to externalize what's usually very much hidden in your own consciousness by the way you react to the stimuli in your life. You actually get to see the, the mostly under-the-radar thoughts that are the judgments, that are the reactions of your own heart and mind to your own life, and by extension, others in your life. You see them with your kids very easily. If you don't have kids, you see them with your employees or with your boss or whomever. With kids, it's easier because they push your buttons more than other people usually. So it's amazing, the work of, of, um, of rearranging your, your source codes, like re, re, refiling things, changing your language, changing the way you're thinking about things, the way they react to things. It's very, very difficult work, isn't it? Yeah. Isn't it? You know, you, I, I, I only speak from experience. I know there are teachers who don't do that. 
but I don't know how to do it any other way, so I apologize if it's about me, but I'm pretty much familiar with my own life. <laughs> so if you go to a yoga class in, the, in this ashram, right, and you take a kid, there was a kid there that happened to be really energetic. And I could imagine at least a dozen different ways to react to any given moment of that kid's way of being in the world. There was at one point the kid was um, interrupting the teacher repeatedly. I have a good idea, I have a good idea. And just watching the way that the teacher interacted with this child was so illuminating. Because not only was it compassionate, loving, and creative, but it was also effective. It was more effective in getting the child to do what she wanted than I would have imagined other methods. And it was, it was completely going to Bina and going to the source. Right? Regardless of what the kid did, she kept coming back to, like, yeah, and presence. And I kept thinking, I wonder how, I, I, I hope that she's like that with herself. You know? You mean the kid would interrupt her and she would say, her commitment was that if the energy was being, if the energy was present, right, the energy that was present in the, in the room or in the platform, in the class, that energy was, was um, it was her responsibility to make sure that it was utilized appropriately and it was channeled appropriately. And she didn't once punish, she didn't once condemn, she was firm. And she, she was masterful. And so, you know, in Bina consciousness, in the Ramak system, in any system of Kabbalah, it's your or my capacity to return to a sense of compassion, a sense of wholeness. Okay. Comments, questions, thoughts? One. Manny. Uh, <coughs> I like the title. All sickness is homesickness. I remember, didn't I, I told you this, the, the line from, the, from Bruce Springsteen in an article, right? Didn't I say this a couple of weeks ago? That all of rock and roll is just one long screed. Daddy, you know, that's what he said, daddy, you know. So this is mother, sickness, whatever. It's, there's a, a deep yearning. And there can be metaphysical homesickness, obviously, too. It's not just home, meaning, right? Our hearts are, are sick until they live in you, God. I want to I wanna just, on a very banal level, rem- remind you that a couple of months ago, I taught you um, the acronym PACE. Anybody remember this? No. In one of my sermons, this is not, this is not boding well for my sermon re- remembrance portion. <laughs> It's like you, know, like, you know, there's a saying in the Talmud, there's no prophet in his own city. Right? There's no prophet in your own city. There are people around the world who are dying for my words. I'm getting paid top dollar. You remember the sermon I gave uh, a couple of years ago? Come I gave, I gave a sermon in which, and you'll remember this, Arthur, P-A-C-E. What is Pace. It's not Pache. Come on. <laughs> Come on. 
I'm sweetening the judgment. It's all good. Play after critical error. Remember that? That there is a, a, there's a sports announcer in, on ESPN who keeps data on the quarterbacks that are able to make the leap from college football to pro football to become elite, elite football players. And by the way, for those who aren't football fans, I forgive you, but, and I'm not a particularly, I'm a hockey, people know me, I'm a hockey fan, I'm a hockey player, but there's no doubt that quarterbacking is one of the most incredibly difficult uh, athletic achievements and prowess that anyone in anywhere has ever contrived to be able to do what they do at that speed and that danger with that kind of awareness. And he summed up all of that, the difference between kind of college-level players who are incredibly gifted and elite in one acronym, play after critical error, which he said is looking at the statistic of what those quarterbacks do on the play after they've made a critical error. What those quarterbacks do in the play after the pick six, you know, interception that they took back for a touchdown or the fumble or the gaff or the stupid, it's, it's how they are able to return, right? Essentially, it's a beat pace, is Bina. In any other word, you know, Bina, B-I-N-A, is, is P-A-C. Bina, it's pace, it's shalom, it's of peace, it's of om, it's of mother, it's all one Torah, right? It's all play after critical error. It's, it's how you recover. It's not your aerobic capacity, but your, your spiritual aerobic capacity. <coughs> how quickly you recover from a place where you have been gone. And Bina is in the silent meditation that we were doing here in the beginning of the night. Like, you know, how long are you in a story before you realize you're in a story? How long are you, are you in an interaction where your ego is triggered and, you're act, and you act reactively and you're not in your best self and then you know, even an hour later you're still writing the email that will explain how you were right for being so angry and then you finally say, okay, you know, and then you just say, you know, sorry, or Bina. And the Ramak is saying that somehow in that moment not only can you return home, but you can bring with you where you were for that last hour and you can elevate that. Like somehow that energy of that mistake can somehow become part of grist for the mill. Right? Somehow that, like, my, like Shiryakov liked to say, that that detour was really a destination. That that detour was a destination. Right? So that, so Bina is that kind of, um, that's, that's our work, you know. Right, so that's Bina. So we, we're going to move to Chesed today, finally. But um, I want to, if there, yeah, go ahead. It's okay. It's okay. Yeah. What's your name? What, what's your name? Natalia. It's, it's everywhere, but I'll give you, I'll give you one, one primary example. It's brought down in the Zohar, in the book of Jewish mysticism, one of them, that there's a mitzvah in the book of Deuteronomy, there's a commandment that when you see a mother bird, 
who is nesting over her children, you are to, what's this, anybody know the mitzvah? What's the mitzvah? Shiluach Hakan, it's called, or sending away the, what's the mitzvah? One is to take the, one grabs the mother, and then, right, you send away the mother, and then you can take the, the children. So the mitzvah, as the Zohar understands it, is that that mitzvah is an illusion. The mother in that mitzvah is not the mother bird. It is, but it's also the mother of the Svirot. <coughs> and the mother of the Svirot, who's the mother of Svirot that I've just been talking about? Who's the aim? Who's the om? Who's the aim? It's Bina. And who are her children? The lower Svirot. The lower Svirot. All of those lower energies, right? Chesed, Gevura, Tiferet, Netzachot, so those are the lower children. So if you want to, if you want to take one of the Svirot, the lower Svirot, you have to first return, you have to first be connected to the power of the mother, identify with Bina, return to that place, to that ever, right, to that empty place where things are replenished, reborn, the possibility, and then one is able to connect with the Svirot. So that's one place. There are many other places where Bina appears. The whole f- beginning of the Torah is about Bina also. The Red Sea, all of these, right? There are metaphors upon metaphors. But Bina is b- basically, it's, it's brought out in the Kabbalah. So everybody got that so far so good? Bina is returning. Bina is returning with all the... And if you are practicing Bina, you are practicing pace, keeping pace, right? How do you re- play... What's your next play, your next moment after critical error? error. Play after critical <coughs> error. Jen. Uh, two things. One is that it's just occurred to me that chasing away right? The life of. I was reading in a book today uh, called The Life Worth Breathing. Um, it doesn't align perfectly with what we're talking about, but very close. It talks about how if you're looking down upon someone because they're not loving, like you yourself are not being loving. Like them, and you are not loving, and that, you know, it's an opportunity for Jikun herself to be beautiful. It kind of upends um, it, it, it upends the sense that um, that your means, if their means are, are, you know, the ends will justify the means. If you use means that aren't holy then in some way you're, you're already tarred with that. Right? Using judgment to undo judgment is, might not be the most useful way. The Buddha has a saying in one of the sutras that um, it's brought in another different girsaot. Um, it says, uh, hatred never ceases hatred, but by love alone is healed. That is an ancient and eternal law. That um, the Buddha used to always say that anger is so dangerous because it's like a hot coal. 
And even if you want to pass it along to somebody, holding it for a moment burns your own hand. So we have our own iterations of that, too, where we say that, uh, you know, and he says it here also, that one should, should use love to, be, to bring closer those who, who are far away. So that brings us to Chesed. I thought there was a hand over here, Eric. What does he mean by left side? Left side of the tree. The left side of the tree, meaning judgment. Judgment is the left side of the tree. Whenever Kabbalah wants to say judgment, they say the left side. Not that all lefties are judgment that might, you know. <laughs> I'm a lefty. My, my son's a lefty. My father's a lefty. I'm not a... I'm definitely not from Gevura. Um... <coughs> I'm going to read to you a little bit of, of Chesed, okay? And it's going to be a little bit of work for me. I always want these teachings to be able to be uh, digestible, even for people who are, who are atheists. But I'm going to use God language. And you'll do the, your own translating into your own life if it works for you, if it doesn't work. It says, yargil adam chesed. Now, he says, in order to be someone who is living a life of chesed, one has to be in love. One has to feel um, a kind of um, passion, a kind of um, infatuation, a kind of fully being taken. You know, um, certain people, when 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 you realize that you love them because they're so pow- their energy is so powerful or there's something in them that is so compelling, you say that they conquered, I say this sometimes, that, that they conquered me. Mm-hmm. You conquered me. Like I sometimes say that with, with uh, my boys or some other, you know, someone who's so wonderful. They're so charming, they conquered me. And I can't help it, I just love them so much. My heart is so... Uh, is so bound up with them, and they're, and they're so compelling to me. He's saying, if you want to be a lover of God, you have to let yourself be loved by God, and you have to be willing to love God completely. And that even means when things don't go well, that you love God so much that you're willing to interpret things that don't seem to be the right moment or the right place, but one is willing to say, I love you and, I'll, and I trust you. Now, it's a difficult theology. It's difficult, especially if, if things go really badly. And there is a place where, um, where this, I think, is so psychologically unhealthy if something, where someone to say, I still love them, even if, even if he's beating the crap out of me. It sounds a lot like uh, Ray Rice's wife, you know. It's like an abusive, abusive relationship with God. But I think he's pointing towards um, 
going. You know, I think that we um, we have a choice often in our lives, and the world is constructed in such a way that we can we can choose to either in any given moment focus on the sunrise or on the sunset we can focus on the miracle of beauty or the the mystery of suffering and we can we can give primacy to one or the other and say well evil is a mystery but Beauty is a reality, and for that I have gratitude. Or we can go the other way. We could say, for me, mystery is, is, is a way to describe how things are beautiful, but what's real is suffering. And in one of them, we can be angry at, at the creator, so to speak, and in the other one, and be, right, not, there's no sense of gratitude to that source. It's like it's all random. Or we can say that the beauty is, is, I'm opening my heart to the beauty of this world. And what do I do with all the stuff that's dark and ugly and, and despair? I'm going to work hard to help eliminate it. And I don't get it. I throw up my hands. It's not karma. I don't have a good theory. I don't understand it. But I still love God. And I think that he, he's throwing that down. He's saying, you know, loving God is loving God is also a practice. Now, all right, I'm stopping here. Go ahead, go ahead. Anybody want to throw a tomato at me? Go ahead. I want to throw something out, but I'm trying to put words in it too. It's like. Um, how do you like you think of horrible things in the world and people also? It's just seeing individual people when you see someone suffering that their suffering is in front of you, and you can feel in love with God and feel God's love and feel happy, but you can't impart that to them. You have to somehow. How do you hold that energy, like that they may not be invested in that, and you have to still love them despite that they can't be loving. I mean. So he says later, he says that when you, are, when you have to act with givura, when you have to act with restraint or with judgment or with boundaries or with sternness or with critical faculty, he said, always root it in love. Right. That's what he says. It should always be rooted in love. And by the way, this is a good text to show someone who says that Christianity and Judaism uh, differ about love. Show this text to somebody who's so sure that when there are Christian notions of loving the enemy or love the one who, who hates you, see if they, how this resonates with the, with the Tomer Dvorah. Did we emphasize that so much in the beginning, or did we evolve into that? It's a good question. I'm not sure. I'm not sure about that. Yes? Um, why do you have more personal theologists is that God is all there is, okay, and God is love, 
I've said that before. Yes. So he would he, he would agree with you. He would agree with you that to love God is to love all that there is, including the things that don't seem to be loving, and that one in those moments. Uh, and he actually he actually brings this in. He says there's a story in the Talmud about a rabbi who was the rabbi of Rabbi Akiva, whose name was Nachum Ish Gamzu. That was his name, Nachum. Ish Gamzu, which, what, what is, so Nochem is a name, Nochem. What's Ish Gamzu, man of Gamzu? How did he get that name? And the story of the Talmud is that whenever something would happen to him that was painful, he would say, Gamzu le Tova. This too is for good. That's what they called him, this too, Gamzu. Because whenever something would happen, he'd say, ah, this too. Right? And his student... This is itself an interesting question, whether or not Rabbi Kiva agreed with this. Because Rabbi Kiva also had a maxim, but he didn't say, Gamzu Tovai. He would say, Everything that God does is for good. But his teacher would say, This too is for good. Gamzu Tovai. Which is a very hard practice. You know, even if you believe that God is all there is. And let's say you've had a very deep personal awareness of that truth. Because that's usually much more compelling to me than someone who just says it. Someone who's actually had that experience of God being all that there is. Which includes light and dark, up and down, all of the binaries. But, but I think it was Rooney, Rooney who said out beyond the field of right and wrong. Within grief is embedded the seeds of joy. Right. So all of those thinkers all of those thinkers, it, when push comes to shove, in the moment when something very difficult happens, to be able to say or think or feel or meditate that this too is for good can be a very, very difficult practice, a very, very trying practice, a very, very strong practice. And for some, it might also be a very disassociating practice. That at that moment when one wants to viscerally say, this is not for good. There's no way that this can be for good. Um, that for those people to say those words can feel extremely spiritually repressive. You know, when the four rabbis were murdered two weeks ago uh, in Israel, the wives of the rabbis uh, published a statement that became widely uh, disseminated and published, that they themselves said they wanted this weekend parshat, you know, I think it was Vayetze, this is the Shabbat of unity, of loving one another for no, good, for no reason, and that we believe that God um, works in mysterious ways and they, our husbands died for a reason, mm. and that we trust and have faith in God. And that, was, that sent around, and it was very, very powerful to hear them saying that. Because here we were, a lot of us going, you know, that is, you know, what is that? That is tragedy, that is tragic, that is horrific. How can you live in faith after that? How does one even find faith? And here he's saying that there's a practice of loving God that is being steadfast in the belief 
that everything that happens happens for a reason. And that is a very difficult practice itself. And by the way, I don't think that one has to go through one's life without moments where, where there can be clarity around that. You say, oh, I get it. God's working. In Yiddish, they say, God is fear the veil. The world is being run by, 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 by God. She runs the world. And then there are moments you think, I have no idea. I don't know who's, who's running this show because, you know, or is God off? You know, is, is God on vacation? And then, of course, your theology, you know, what does that even mean? Does God, God is all there is. So for him, it's a practice, reminding, ourse- reminding ourselves to see that and to say that. But then he says something very beautiful that has very deep, I think, I think very touching. Uh, <coughs> possibilities for us. He says... Bless you. He says, Ezehu chasid hamit chasid im kono. He says that love is knowing what the other needs before they ask for it. So like in that famous formulation, love is never having to say, I'm sorry. sorry. Right, exactly. What is that? Never bought that. Never bought that. One. <laughs> so, so it was like yeah, maybe in the movies, you know. Um, but love, he would say, love is becoming so attached to the person that you were with that you have a sense of what they need even when they don't know. And he he, he actually uses this vis-a-vis God, which is pretty radical, right? Like that, wanting to do God's will even when it isn't expressed. So here, God says. For example, um, love the stranger. And if that's what God is saying explicitly, what is God saying without words? Like going beyond the letter of the law. That's the, the word chasid is somebody who goes beyond the letter of the law, meaning from what the law says, they then say, if that's what the law says, I'll go, I'll go, I'll do even more. Right? It's like, um, you know, you guys know the story about, um, a Hasidic story about uh, a rabbi or someone came to him before Yom Kippur or before Pesach and said, Rabbi, I don't have it. You read that story for us, right? Right, so it's a famous story about a rabbi who, someone came and said, I don't have, I have no money for, uh, for Pesach. I, I need money for, uh, for, for, for milk. He said it for right. okay. Okay. milk. Drink milk for, for Seder. So he understood that if he doesn't have money for, 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 for wine, he probably, he probably doesn't have money for a lot of other things, matzah, other things. So from what he said, he was able to discern the depth of what was not being said. And so he, is, as many other Kabbalists say, that that's the way we should be with God. It's like from what God said right, to us, try to understand what God didn't say. Isn't that great? So the chassid will go and say, uh, if God said, don't cut, you know, don't cut this part of your, your hair. Like in the Torah, it says, don't use a knife on your face. So the chassid says, okay, great, that's what God, you know, I shouldn't use a knife on my face. But maybe I should grow out my hair. <laughs> that's what they do. Yeah. Right? God says, don't do X. He said, oh, I won't do X? You, but I get that you probably don't also want to do Y and Z. Now, 
that's dangerous because it becomes, well, maybe God it doesn't have a problem expressing God's self, and God didn't, you know. Maybe God isn't like this, you know, jock that can't say what he really thinks and feels, and she feels. So, um, but it also becomes the, let's, let's take it down to, into our lives. In, in, in mysticism, like in PhD level mysticism, the conversation is this. We know God as one and we love God as many. We know God as one, but we love God as many. In other words, we, to, to know God as one is to not allow fragments to be confused for the one. We don't allow fragmented divine images to replace the purity of that one. I essentially say, no, it's not a religion. God isn't a religion. God isn't a tree. God isn't a stone. God isn't, God isn't any of those things because I'm looking for the one that's beyond the finite. Does that make sense? Yeah. I want to know God beyond fragmentation. God isn't a man or a woman or an energy. God isn't a color. God isn't love. God isn't any of those things. Because what I really want is, what I really want is a God that's beyond an idea. I want God as the only perfect expression of the infinite that there could be, which is tasteless, uh, you know, colorless, odorless, concept-free, not a God of my own making, a God of my own choosing, not a God that is a tree or a rock or Elvis, Costello or Presley, any of those. But when I love God, the mystics say, that energy of devotion, that energy of chesed, loves God in all things and through all things and via all things. And that if love is not full and complete, then in that sense, God is not being fully worshipped and known. Bless you. So the chesed of, of the work of loving is that I commit myself, I commit myself to loving, uh, to being open to loving the world. To loving the world. It's not a meditation on the divine form in you it's not a meditation on softening my forehead. It isn't a meditation on returning. It is a meditation on the power of love. The power of love. And seeing um, and feeling that, and because of love, being willing to go beyond what is stated. Kind of run, we run the ground on this, on this, uh, Unless me done. Um, questions, comments, thoughts, tomatoes. Yeah. That when you uh, feel connected, when you choose to feel connected to people that you know that you don't know, that's that's the process of what you're talking about. 
When you choose to be connected to people you know or don't know, that's the process I'm talking about. So let me ask you a question. How many people here love Romamu? You don't have to say it. I, I, don't want, I don't want anybody to tell me they love it if they don't love Romamu, because I'm just using it as an example. How many people here love Romamu? One more time. Fine. I have to. <laughs> How many people here would consider themselves Hasidim of Ramamu? Students, devotees, committed ones, lovers of Hasidim in that sense. So let me ask you a question. If chesed means the willingness to put yourself out for the thing or person you love, even when, and especially when, something has not been clearly articulated, but by a logging into what's needed or what's desired from that loved one, what would it look like to be a chesed at Romano, or in your community, or in this country? So we'd ask not what your country can do for you, <laughs> but what your, you can do for your country. Right. Which means, if you really love, like, and, I, and by the way, my father and my mother, and, and by the way, people, when I went to work in places where people expected a devotional commitment to the place that we worked in, they would say, if you love this place that you're working in, and you walk by, and you see a piece of, a napkin on the floor, and you don't pick it up, Right? If you, if you walk by, right, if you walk by in Ramamu and you see, so, you know, you see, you walk by and you say, you know, isn't that where they usually put, we, we usually put that thing? And it's not there, I wonder. Like, the relationship between an I-it relationship and an I-thou relationship, people know those terms? Mm-hmm. So an I-it relationship is where I am instrumentally relating to someone or something. It doesn't matter. Anything outside of me. Right? Or, uh, not true, and even me. I can instrumentalize myself. I-it myself. In fact, that's probably the whole Freudian agenda, is to come out of eating myself. I-it I myself. Right? I've split off something and it's become an it. It used to belong to me and now it's an it. And the work is to make it, to be in a relationship of, of inquiry and, and and devotion and, and, um, and, and honor, respect with that part of myself that I have rejected, or I've instrumentalized, or I've used. I use myself. I objectify myself. So Buber said that you can I it anything, anyone, and you, the ideal relationship, although he didn't say it, it ideally understood him to be in a dialectic, is I-thou, where it's, where it's actually not I and you, but actually it's happening here yeah. in this. So you can be at Romamu and you can instrumentalize Romamu. I'm, not, I'm just using it as an example. Like you're in a shul and the shul is there to give you certain services and you like it, you don't like it, it worked for you, it didn't work for you, the rabbi was nice this week, he wasn't nice this week, he spoke <laughs> for 15 minutes, which I love, the last week it was 20, which I don't love, and so this week was better than last week. 
this week he talked about God, last week he didn't. You can have a whole list. He did talk about Israel. He didn't talk about Israel. You know, I liked what he was wearing or she was wearing. Like we have all, you know, not in Roma, but in other places, you know. And so, you know, if you're a chassid, it means that when, if you really love it, you can ask yourself, how, how, how deep is your love? <laughs> is your love this deep? If you are in a loving relationship with Ramamu or anything, not only do you love the person, but you actually are caring. You look at them and say, you know, you really need to blah, blah, blah. I really could help you. Like this week, I have a, a, someone who works at, at Ramamu. She knew that I was running from a funeral to a thing to a thing. And without even saying a word to me, she said, Rabbi, um, you, you haven't eaten lunch today. I'm going to order you lunch. And, then, and I had forgotten to eat lunch, which I do a lot. And she said, I'm gonna, I, I, I remember you need to eat lunch. And then she went and said, I, I, I know that you're running here. Another, you're, I was back to back. She said, I, I ordered your, you know, the car to come. Then, then, she like, had five steps ahead of me. That's chasidut. They do it. It's, it's, it's knowing from a moment Right from the request for milk, that milk, the, the shaila, the rabbi was, I understand what he didn't say. Right, the shul says we need shomim, and it takes us three years, four years, for us to have anybody replace the shomim. And I said to myself, Is anybody love Ramamu? It must be that everybody here is so busy that they can't get to shul fifteen minutes early to help out the same five people that have been doing the same thing for four years for everybody else. Because everybody else in Romamu has, their time is so important that the, the same six people can put out the Sidurim and Chumashim for five years. And everybody else walks in and says, oh, look, it's all set up. Look how amazing it is that the church becomes a synagogue in five minutes. <laughs> wow. It's all prepared. It's perfect. And the people, same people in the back, same people showing up, same people taking a train for an hour and a half to get there to help it out, and people coming and going, oh, it's so great. You were just using that as an example? I just was. <laughs> <laughs> so, so I want to say that, that the sh- I want to say that, that um, it just, you know, it was a riff. And, and uh, <laughs> I, 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 well, it really, honestly, it was a riff. I don't think these things are true. Um, and, and I just want to say that um, that as, as, a, as a Hasid who loves the community, it's my responsibility often to balance inviting people to speak uh, and articulate what they need, but also for me to be listening for what isn't being said. And I do that also with my wife and my children, and we do that with our, uh, our loved ones in our circles, and we do that with our uh, various organizations that we are committed to. And, and it doesn't mean that one has to love Ramamu or any other organization. But the question is, if you, one would say it, honestly, I really love that place, then one can ask, if it's really chesed, are you in a level of chesed which is that you go beyond the letter of the law into what's not being said, and that's already another level okay. of, of devotion with people, right, you know, with, and it has a very deep, it's, it's, it's deeply embodied, too. It's, a very, it's very much connected with <coughs> With, with the release of, 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 of good feelings in, in our lives. Yeah, Judy. Which is full circle back to the spirit of the 12 steps. Yes. Giving back to the community. Right. 
to give back to the community, whatever that community might be. Um, so that is not, a, it is a perfect segue into end of the year giving, but you see that I didn't think about any of this. So there is no pitch. I just happen to say that that happens to work with the theme of giving back at this time of the year. And um, so God should bless us in every area of our lives to be chassidim in the true sense of the word, not devotees, devotees of one guru or one rebbe, but people who are, um, whose hearts are wide open to know not just uh, what love is, but to go beyond love into chesed, into mit chesed. It's a good, a good kavanah.